Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Revealing the hidden secrets of the sea. This is Naked Oceans. This month on Naked Oceans, we're venturing beneath the waves to catch up with the latest developments in marine protected areas, or MPAs. Hot off the press from a brand new report, we'll be finding out how many MPAs there are in the world today, how much of the ocean they currently cover, and whether we're anywhere near reaching global targets for ocean protection. Hello, I'm Helen Scales, and with me is Sarah Caster-Perry. Hi, Sarah. Hello. We'll also be heading out and about to track down some fantastic ocean wildlife in a marine reserve in the UK. And as always, we'll be asking a marine expert to choose our critter of the month. It even changes its shape, its eyes get bigger and its colour gets different so it can be disguised as it goes on a perhaps a 4,000 mile migration to the Sargasso Sea. Stay tuned to find out who that was and if they were a marine critter, which one they'd be and why. If you have any questions for us, do get in touch. You can tweet us at Naked Oceans or email us. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. Supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation, this is Naked Oceans on the web at nakedscientist.com slash oceans. This is Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Castor-Perry. This month we're talking marine protected areas, or MPAs, those parts of the oceans that are set aside to allow marine life to recover and stay healthy and abundant. Coming up, we'll hear about a new generation of MPAs that will soon be appearing around the English coast. But first, let's catch up on some of the latest news from the marine world. So, Sarah, what have you got for us? Well, I've got a really interesting story about mangrove killifish. These tiny little fish are native to Florida and Central and South America. And as the name suggests, they live in mangroves in coastal areas. The killifish are really pretty amazing because they can survive huge differences in salt levels in the water that they live in. And they can also survive out of water for up to several weeks. Now, a team from the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada, wanted to find out how they managed to survive out of the water. Most fish can't live out of water because as soon as they're in air, their gills collapse because of the surface tension of the water on them and they can no longer get enough oxygen to survive, get rid of waste products or maintain their internal ion or salt balance. And the team led by Danielle Leblanc hypothesised that the fish must be exchanging water, ions and oxygen across their skin instead. They tested the fish by keeping them in humid air on a moist surface of either fresh or salt water for nine days and measuring the physiological changes. They found that the fish had as many ionocytes, now those are cells for exchanging ions and maintaining salt balance in the body, in their skin as in their gills, and that the cells increase in size when the fish are exposed to air. 
And by using radioactive isotopes of sodium and hydrogen, they showed that ions were definitely being exchanged across the skin when the gills were out of action. This allowed the fish to mostly maintain their ion balance when out of water. The gill physiology actually also changed when the fish were in air, with cells clumping the lamellae of the gills together to protect them and to reduce the surface area for water loss. And they found that both the changes in the skin and the gills were reversible when the fish were put back into water. So it's pretty cool that the fish have evolved to cope with this hugely changeable environment of the mangroves and that we're now understanding their adaptations a bit better. It certainly sounds like killifish go to a bit more of an effort to deal with being out of water than some of the other fish that live at the margins of the ocean, like uh, like lungfish, because all they do is wrap themselves up in mud and estivate and just kind of avoid the whole thing. But uh, killifish seem to do a really amazing job at, at doing that in these remarkable and wonderful ecosystems that are, that are mangroves, with all sorts of creatures living on that weird boundary where, where life must be really pretty tough. Well, this month, Naked Oceans is all about marine protected areas, and I've got some news on a new project that lets people explore the national parks and protected areas of the world from the comfort of their homes. Well, at the click of a mouse, the Protected Planet website lets you hop from Yellowstone National Park to the Serengeti to Annapurna and thousands of beautiful and biodiverse corners of the globe in other little-known protected areas, both on land and in the sea. Well, I've been having a play with it, and I have to say it's a bit like uh, Google Earth meets TripAdvisor pimped for protected areas. Um, The interactive site brings together all sorts of information from databases like the Global Biodiversity Information Facility and the World Database on Protected Areas, and then it mixes in together um, perhaps other more familiar stuff like Wikipedia and Flickr. And uh, people who've been to these protected areas can upload photos, write travel tips, and recommend interesting spots to visit. Um, And each entry really gives a flavour of what the protected area looks like and what you might find if you were to go there, as well as information about how big it is and when it was set up and so on. Um, And it seems really to be aimed both at the wannabe eco-tourists who can experience the world through their computer screens, as well as explorers searching for their next destination. And generally the idea is to raise awareness about some of the lesser-known protected spots um, that could potentially benefit from well-managed tourism, bringing in more visitors and, most importantly, more tourist dollars. Well, it's also been touted as a serious conservation tool for government scientists and NGOs who want to download the latest information about protected areas. They even reckon that visitors can play an important research role by logging on and reporting which species they've seen when they've been to these different places. Well, I typed in the word marine and I came up with 1,146 results, including enticing-looking spots like the Ulunakoro Marine Reserve in Fiji, the Nguna Pele Marine Reserve in Vanuatu, and the Guaihanas National Marine Conservation Area in Canada, which you might remember we talked about a couple of months ago here on Naked Oceans. And I have to say, it definitely got me dreaming about wonderful faraway places. Yeah, it definitely sounds like the sort of website I could easily spend a whole afternoon whiling away the time dreaming of far-flung places. But I suppose in some ways you have to be really careful with encouraging tourism in places like this because they can potentially cause a bit of a problem i mean from my own personal experience when i visited the great barrier reef just off cairns because everyone goes from cairns on the on the tourist boats most of the coral it's all dead it's all been just sort of kicked by people waving their fins around in a slightly careless manner and people going oh i'll just take a little bit of this coral home so i suppose as long as it encourages ecotourism and the growth of that industry in a sustainable well-managed way then it's a fantastic thing to get people interested in these places because i think it was the the great david attenborough that said we cannot 
value what we do not know. So if we don't know about these places, then we're not going to be enthused about conserving them. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, I, I kind of get the feeling that this kind of project, the Protected Planet Project, is the sort of place where if, if places do start getting trampled and damaged, that's where we can go and kind of complain about it and tell other people. So hopefully this will drive forward really sustainable uh, tourism in those little known places. Well, you can find out more about our new stories and find a link to the Protected Planet Project on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. From seagrass to sunfish, dugongs to diatoms, this is Naked Oceans. Coming up, we'll be heading out and about to find some wonderful ocean wildlife in a marine reserve off the coast of Wales. But first, we've seen a lot of talk this month about global biodiversity and how good or bad a job we're doing in protecting it, with nations gathering in Nagoya in Japan at the latest meeting of the Convention on Biological Diversity. Well, the CBD began at the Rio Earth Summit back in 92, and in 2002, we set an ambitious target of significantly reducing the loss of biodiversity around the world by 2010. Yep, that's this year. Well, an important part of those targets was to conserve large parts of the ocean inside marine protected areas. A new report was released at Nagoya, which has brought together the latest stats on how we're getting on towards reaching those global goals for protecting the seas. We chatted to one of the report authors, Mark Spaulding, from the Nature Conservancy to find out more about what we've achieved so far. This latest study has come up with a new global total for marine protected areas. Just over 5,800 marine protected areas uh, worldwide. They cover about 4.2 million square kilometres of the world's oceans. Those sorts of figures are pretty hard to visualise. It is a very large area, but actually the world's oceans are so vast that it really is still more like a drop in the ocean. It's about 1.2% of the total ocean surface. 1.2%, that doesn't sound a lot. But then eight years ago, there were plans to protect quite a bit more than that by now. Targets were set by the international community, and really this is these are set by governments, and they're, they're meant to be kind of incentives and drivers for change, and it was recognised we needed to do a lot more, particularly in the oceans. Uh, it was also recognised we had a long way to go in the oceans, but the target was set to, to try and establish... 10% of the oceans as being effectively managed for, for conservation. So we've only got to 1.2%. So we're way off target. Um, it's a little bit even more complex than that because it, they, they talked about representative protection. So in other words, they didn't just want a sort of overall 10% figure which you could put all in one place. Uh, they wanted us to capture all the different aspects of, of marine biodiversity from the tropics to the Arctic and the Antarctic. And so where have our marine protection efforts been focused so far? Perhaps not surprising, the bulk of the effort has been very close to shore. If you confine yourself to looking just at the coastal strip as sort of narrow two-kilometre belt around the world's coastlines, we've actually met the target and, and exceeded it. We're up to 12% globally. But as you look offshore, you look across the continental shelf, the number drops off rapidly. Only 4.3% of the shallow waters out to 200 metres depth. And of course, as you look into the offshore waters, off-shelf and into the high seas, the areas that are owned by no particular country, as it were, uh, the, the figure drops to pretty close to zero. Really, we've got this very land-centric view of the ocean still in the way we've been declaring marine protected areas. And the high seas jump out at us as being a, a real hole in this effort to secure a future for the oceans. Another thing that uh, jumps out of the data is that um, it looks like we've now got a handful of really enormous MPAs. Now, surely that has to be a good thing, doesn't it? It's a great thing, and we mustn't do that down. I mean, we list in this report the, the 24 sites that are the size of Belgium or larger. They're pretty whopping sites. 
things like the Great Barrier Reef. And they have been probably the major contributor to the acceleration of ocean protection. But what we're missing in that kind of view is, is the small sites near to people. Marine protected areas aren't just for nature, but people stand to, to benefit hugely from marine protected areas. Uh, one of the stories that's stood out over the years is a little island in the Philippines called Apo Island, where the local community have set aside a chunk of their coral reef with no fishing whatsoever. And what they found is that their overall fish catch has gone up and up. And that's simply the result of protecting this little investment of fish, larger fish which breed well and export both adults and larvae to the surrounding reefs. So let's try and get these MPAs not only in the wilderness in the last great ocean spaces, but as we move them closer to home, to closer to where people live and depend on the sea, we're going to start, I think, getting much more buy-in, much more enthusiasm for marine protected areas. And, and I hope the thing will snowball. People will learn from what's going on next door and want more of the action themselves. And talking of enthusiasm um, to, to set up protected areas, um, it seems the developed world is actually lagging behind the developing world, which is really not what you would expect given the amount of resources that presumably richer countries have to devote to things like marine conservation. Both from a resources perspective and also from a kind of a lot of the science has been done by the wealthiest nations who, who have the funds for, for doing the research. But the people who are putting it into practice have been mostly based in the tropics. It seems to be a huge struggle to get nearly as far um, in the temperate regions of the world. We in the West could learn from, from the developing countries in, in the tropics. We need to have these examples on the ground that people can learn from. And you know, it's an uphill struggle to get the first MPA in because no one quite trusts uh, that they'll really do what we, we say they'll do. But um, once you start getting a few and people are beginning to benefit, then I think the whole thing should be a runaway success. Let's hope so. Now, even if we reached that 10% target that we've been talking about, what about the other 90% of the oceans outside protected areas? Is protecting one-tenth of the oceans really going to be enough to keep them healthy? Well, 10% clearly isn't enough. What we've got to do is think more holistically about the entire ocean surface. In Nagoya, they've kind of agreed to, to keep the 10% target, but extend the deadline out to 2020, which could sound like a bit of a failure, um, given that there were some efforts by some countries to actually drop that target completely or drop it down when one country was talking about dropping it down to only 6%. I think keeping the target is probably a sensible thing to do. We really must remember, though, that that target is a waypoint, not an endpoint. We need to think about the broader ocean space which we use. And really, the endpoint must be 100% oceans targeted for sensible joined up management. That means getting the fisheries agencies, talking to the planning agencies, talking to the conservation folk. And I think from a general public point of view, it means that a much larger constituency needs to really start thinking of the ocean as, as being theirs. It belongs to us all and we all really need to be concerned about it and feel um, a part of it. Mark Spaulding there, giving us the lowdown on where we're at globally with marine protected areas. And at just 1.2% of the oceans, we've clearly got an awfully long way to go. But I think the really good news is that at least we're speeding up in our efforts to protect the oceans. And I think we just have to cross our fingers for this new target. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think it's kind of shocking, actually, that temperate areas in areas where they're richer parts of the world are actually lagging behind slightly poorer parts of the world because it's not just the tropical areas and the coral reefs that need protection. I mean, there are lots of other areas that need protection as well. But here in England, some exciting steps are being taken to set up marine protected areas. We spoke to Jen Ashworth from Natural England. They're the statutory nature conservation advisors to the UK government, both on land and in the sea, up to 12 nautical miles from shore. 
Helen went to chat with her about a series of new MPAs that are soon to appear around the English coastline and to find out how they're getting a helping hand from members of the public. Along with many other countries, the UK has signed up to international agreements to create a network of marine protected areas by 2012. In England's inshore waters, we already have 55 marine protected areas designated under European legislation, and these are designed to protect habitats and species of European importance that are thought to be particularly special. These are things such as reefs, sandbanks, intertidal mudflats, um, also lamprey, seals, and also a wide range of marine seabirds. In 2009, the UK government enacted the Marine and Coastal Access Act and that gives us the tools to create new national marine protected areas known as marine conservation zones. Within these new national marine protected areas we're going to be able to protect a much wider range of habitats and species and really look at all the exciting wildlife in our seas. For example we want to try and protect habitats such as seagrass beds, coastal salt marsh, also species such as seahorses, eels, the pink sea fan and the sunset cup coral. Well I guess um, it's easy to see how uh, marine protected areas will work for um, areas of fixed habitat like seagrass beds and things like that and, as well as these species that uh, stick themselves to the seabed like pink sea fans um, but what about the more mobile species do marine protected areas work for them as well it's not a simple yes or no answer if we wanted to protect a species such as cod or herring or something like the common skate we'd need really large marine protected areas and those aren't necessarily practical what you can do however is protect key areas important for life history stages. So, for example, areas where um, these species spawn or nursery areas where we can protect the juveniles. So the marine protected areas can play a role in looking after these species. There's quite a varied language for marine conservation when we're talking about these sort of protected areas. We've got marine parks, marine reserves, no-take zones, um, things like that. Um, Are these really just variations on a theme or are there actually some important differences between all these different terms? Well, just like there's different terms for protected areas on land, such as national parks or nature reserves, it's the same as in the sea. We tend to use marine protected areas as the umbrella term for all nature conservation designations in in our seas. There's actually a global classification that's been created by the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and that ranges from strict nature reserves, um, where almost no activities are allowed, to managed resource protected areas, where your aim is for the sustainable use of marine resources. Fantastic. So we can carry on talking about marine protected areas as a kind of general term. Um, And I guess uh, once you've decided what you want to protect you've got all these wonderful species in England how do you then go about deciding where those MPAs should be and how big they should be how many you need and so on well those are really key questions that we've been facing Helen and we have a series of network design principles that we're using in England and surrounding offshore waters to identify marine protected areas. The answers are usually part science and part policy, and it's Natural England's role, along with the Joint Nature Conservation Committee, just to focus on the science aspects of those. So, for example, Natural England has undertaken research to look at how big a protected area might need to be to protect a population of animals or plants, and also how far apart marine protected areas should be in order to maximise connections between them how many replicates, how many different protected areas of the same habitat you want to have, just in case something happened, you know, a disaster happened to those areas. And and how is the science of marine protected areas? It's often said that we know much more about natural systems on land um, than we do in the sea, which makes sense because we live on land. Um, But do we have enough information to feed into these uh, models of how we're going to, to make protected areas in the sea? That's a good question. And one of the principles we're using is that you should use the best available evidence that you have. So we've been undertaking research 
research within Natural England to help answer the various science questions, but also um, the government, um, the Department of the Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, DEFRA, have um, run a big project trying to create new habitat maps, new maps of distributions of species um, and other habitats to give us even better information. And the Joint Nature Conservation Committee, who are our partners, um, have also been creating new habitat maps and undertaking new science as well. So we're not just waiting for that information, we're bringing it together and using what we've got to get these protected areas really happening now. Yes, we can always collect new and better information, but at some point we've got to make the decision to go ahead and look after our marine environment on the best available information we have at the time. For the marine protected areas in England, the rather exciting aspect to all this is that you're actually asking members of the public to help you decide where these MPAs are going to be. Now, how does that work and and what are the benefits of what I guess we call a bottom-up approach to conservation? Well, this bottom-up approach is being used to identify the new national marine protected areas, the marine conservation zones. We think it's really important to ask people who use the sea where they want to see protected and give them a say in decisions that are being made. This process worked really well in California and we wanted to use something similar within England. Natural England and the Joint Nature Conservation Committee set up the Marine Conservation Zone project to do just this. Within that, there's four regional projects around the coast of England whose task it is to involve stakeholders, people that use the sea, such as fishermen, wind farm companies, oil and gas, and also people that use it for recreation, such as divers, snorkelers, sea kayakers and sea anglers, to tell us where they think they'd like protected areas to be and where they'd not like them to be. And we think this is the first time this engagement and involving people has been done on such a large scale. By involving people from the beginning, you can try and minimise any impacts you might have on their livelihoods or their business. You can also increase compliance if people have consensus about where they want the protected areas to be. It's more likely that those MPAs are going to be successful. We can also access a wider range of information. People who use the sea know a lot about the sea. And by gathering that information, it allows people to make better decisions. Lots of exciting stuff going on in marine protection in England. How do these plans fit into a slightly wider scheme? I guess we've got to fit this within what's going on in other parts of the ocean nearby in in Europe. Yes, well, the marine protected areas being identified in England will contribute to a UK network of marine protected areas, along with other marine protected areas from Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and offshore waters. Then the UK will contribute to better marine conservation in Europe. For example, there's various bits of European legislation that all European countries countries with a sea area are implementing. We have the Habitats and Wild Birds Directives that create marine protected areas of European importance. And we also have the new um, Marine Strategy Framework Directive that gives a great opportunity to get all Europe's seas into a good environmental status by 2020. That was Natural England's Jen Ashworth telling us about plans to set up a new generation of MPAs in English waters. It's, it's going to be really interesting to see how these marine conservation zones, the MCZs, work out with this new innovative way of asking sea users to help decide where the site should be set up. Because, like she said, it should help make sure that the areas work well and don't just end up being paper parks. Yeah, definitely. And uh, you can find out more about how England's MCZ project is getting on and see how they progress up to 2012 and beyond by following links from our webpage. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Making waves about the underwater world, this is Naked Oceans. You're listening to Naked Oceans with Helen Scales and Sarah Caster-Perry. This month, we're talking about efforts around the globe to conserve ocean life inside marine protected areas. And earlier this year, I went along to check out some of the marine wildlife that thrives inside a marine reserve just off the Welsh coast. 
Well, I'm currently bobbing around on the Irish Sea in Cardigan Bay off the west coast of Wales and I am on a survey boat. I've joined the Cardigan Bay Marine Wildlife Centre on one of their daily trips out into the bay to track down and see if they can find any of the wonderful marine life that lives in the bay. Um, I'm with various members of the public who come along and help with these surveys and uh, well I guess we'll just have to wait and see what we find while holding on very carefully so that we don't fall in because the waves are quite big today. <laughs> well we have our first sighting. It's a bit far away and it's pretty choppy uh, but we're pretty confident that it's a uh, it's a bottlenose dolphin, possibly a mother with its calf, which means we have to be particularly careful and not get too close. No, I still can't see it. Oh yes, there it is. Yes, there was a dark fin just just appeared and disappeared in the waves. Oh, there it is. Yes, fantastic. It's a mother and a calf. Mother and a newborn calf. Wonderful. A new baby dolphin came to say hello. How nice. And it is again, they came up really close that time. The water is uh, sort of oh <laughs> oh dear, I missed that. Luckily, it didn't get me, but that was an enormous wave. Two, two of our two of the kids are now absolutely soaked. But they seem to be quite enjoying that, so I think that's all right. I'm glad I wasn't standing over there. I'm not in my wetsuit. <laughs> Much fun being had by all. We've come across and we're actually just looking for some of the wonderful marine birds that live in the area too. This is a really important nesting site for lots of marine birds. Um, and lots of orcs, apparently. We don't have any puffins, but we have things like guillemots and kittiwakes, cormorants and shags and uh, various other winged creatures um, that uh, also enjoy this, this area of Wales, this very biodiverse and productive part of the country. We just saw a gannet diving into the sea. It had amazing wide wings and it just turned around and dropped dropped into the water like, a, like an arrow. I think it caught something too. Beautiful. We've just come in to the harbour now. We've uh, moored up, so it's nice and smooth, um, away from the waves. And I've managed to grab Steve Hartley, who was driving the boat for us. He is the founder and uh, the manager of the Cardigan Bay Marine Wildlife Centre. And and this is a really important part of the of the British coast, isn't it? We've got all sorts of important areas that have been designated um, in Cardigan Bay. This is the first stretch of the uh, British coastline that's been designated as a marine heritage coast. What does that actually mean? Protection-wise, the marine heritage coast is more raising awareness than having something that is in you know, law. Uh, but the marine heritage coast was designated to raise awareness of the area's sort of unspoilt natural beauty and uh, wide variety of wildlife that we have here. Uh, and we're very proud of that designation. If you come here in May, June, when we've got the cliffs absolutely alive with huge variety of different birds nesting and then you can just be off the headland there and be surrounded by bottlenose dolphins foraging and then look over on the rocks you'll have atlantic gray seals hauled out and you know porpoise further away it really is a special area and uh, that's why it's designated as uh, britain's first marine heritage coast offshore here now uh, we've got an area that's been designated by europe as an sac that's a special area of conservation and that area has been designated 
again, primarily because of the bottlenose dolphins we've got here, but there's other species also uh, that it's uh, designated for. So that is a protected area. There are protection measures to help preserve, protect those dolphin species and the other important creatures in the bay. The government are duty-bound to make sure that activities in that area, in the SAC, don't threaten the, uh, those species. And uh, I'm not sure that's always happening. You are concerned that there are threats to these, these species that are ongoing. What, what are the sort of threats that they're facing? There's been scallop dredging in Carding Bay for the last 30 years. 30 years ago, I worked on a scallop dredger. But then it sort of things went pretty quiet then, because it's very much a boom and bust industry, so we had a lot of activity 30 years ago. Things gone very quiet then for 20-odd for years or more. And then in the last couple of years, we've had quite huge numbers of dredgers coming in and dredging in Cardigan Bay. The year before last, we had 80-odd boats come down, of huge, all sizes too, dredging up and down Cardigan Bay. Several groups got together and put in complaint to the British government, saying that, well, surely you're not looking after the SAC properly if you're allowing this to happen. So last season, there was a greatly reduced effort in Cardigan Bay. We had a lot of areas close to scallop dredges, but they still opened up a box right in the middle of the SAC, a special area of conservation. And everybody knows, you know, scallop dredging is one of the most destructive forms of fishing, certainly to the seabed, that there is. I know how destructive it is. I've worked on a dredger. I've, sh- I've been there lifting the dredges in, emptying them on the deck, and then shoveling the seabed over the side. It is destructive. There is no two ways about it. And uh, the more it goes on in an area, the more it destroys the seabed and the, uh, the habitat and the species that live there. And presumably those are all the species that are important for the wonderful big creatures we see at the top of the food chain, the dolphins, the porpoises. They rely on all these smaller creatures that presumably are being destroyed and, and dug up by these scallop dredgers. Well, it's all part of the, it's the, the bottom of the food chain. And, you know, if they're dredging up sandbanks out there, then we're losing the sand eels. Well, what relies on the sand eels? The bird colonies rely on the sand eels. The mackerel that come in, huge shoals of mackerel come in and feed on the sand eels. The larger animals feed on the mackerel. It's the whole food chain. And also there's, uh, you know, the habitat. They've, they've proved by experiments that the more you dredge an area, the more it changes the, the actual seabed itself. What we need is to thoroughly survey the bay And if there are areas that we can genuinely say, well, these areas can be dredged without long-term damage to the broader bay itself, then fair enough, let them fish those areas in a sustainable way. Now, that was the first time I'd ever seen a dolphin in UK waters. It was such a treat. And despite all the threats that Steve mentioned, Cardigan Bay really has some extraordinary ocean life, and it's definitely well worth a visit if you ever get the chance to go that way. That was Steve Hartley from the Cardigan Bay Marine Wildlife Centre introducing me to some of the local ocean celebrities of South West Wales. Well, that's almost all we've got time for this month on Naked Oceans, but before we go, let's find out who we caught up with to choose our Critter of the Month. My name's Dan LaFolly. I'm Marine Vice Chair of the World Commission on Protected Areas for IUCN. That's the International Union for Conservation of Nature. And my critter of the month is the eel. Now, why might you ask the eel? You're probably familiar with it in terms of uh, living in uh, a muddy uh, stream or estuary. But the eel really is an ocean champion and really epitomises the the challenge that we have with with protecting the seas. When it's ready to spawn, it it leaves the estuaries, goes into the sea, stops feeding. It even changes its shape. Its eyes get bigger and its colour gets different so it can be disguised as it goes on a perhaps a 4,000-mile migration to the Sargasso Sea. And 
in this amazing floating golden rainforest in the North Atlantic, that's where new eels are, are spawned and born. And then over the next seven to 11 months, they drift back slowly towards the UK and finally transit back into the estuaries. And they're ocean champions because they tell us that the ocean and the lander are connected. And they very much reflect what I try and do in my role globally, which is try and explain why the 70% of the earth covered by the ocean really matters. And in a sense, like the eels, so we are dependent on the ocean. For every breath we take and every sip of water we drink, it links us back to the seas. And in a sense, the eel shows us that if there's no blue, there's no green. If we didn't have the ocean, we wouldn't have eels. Eels also epitomise the challenge we have to conserve a species that is so dependent, both in terms of fresh water and uh, marine waters. And that really brings home to us the challenge we face in terms of understanding just what the ocean does for us and in understanding that we need to care so much more for the ocean if we're going to have a bright future on planet Earth. Dan LaFolly there, introducing us to the elusive and critically endangered eels, those wonderful globe-trotting beasts. Well, check out our website to find out what other critters our marine experts have been choosing. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. That's all we've got time for for this episode of Naked Oceans, and it just remains for me to say a huge thank you to Mark Spaulding, Jen Ashworth, Steve Hartley and Dan LaFolly. Tune in again next time when we'll be bringing you the 12 Critters of Christmas, a rundown of some of the most weird and wonderful animals in the oceans. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter, we're at Naked Oceans, or drop us an email. The address is nakedoceans at thenakedscientist.com. You'll find more info on this month's show and all the others at thenakedscientist.com forward slash oceans. Thanks for listening and catch you next time. Naked Oceans is produced by The Naked Scientists and supported by the Save Our Seas Foundation. For more information, look them up online at saveourseas.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details.